Um, from the perspective of somatic cell, we know that um, dairy products and, and namely um, cheese and extended shelf life fluid um, can be severely um, impacted by high somatic cell count milk. And in cheese, it's both from the perspective of flavor and odor um, and body characteristics and also from a yield perspective. So the processor who makes cheese out of high somatic cell count milk will get less cheese, essentially. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like, with early detection in health, reproduction, and feeding, SmaxTech future-proofs your dairy operation. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg & Schmidt, Diamond V. Because animal health deserves a healthier approach. AB Vista, feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. When it comes to raising healthy animals, you need more than the right solutions. You need the right partner who brings decades of industry expertise and a global team to put that knowledge to work for the advancement of your operation. At Fibro Animal Health Corporation, we are proud to work with you as your trusted partner. Welcome back to another episode of the Dairy Podcast Show. Today, I am pleased to welcome Dr. Nicole Martin to the show. Dr. Martin serves as an assistant research professor in dairy foods microbiology and the associate director of the Milk Quality Improvement Program at Cornell University. She received her BS, MS, and PhD degrees in food science from Cornell University, and she began her current role as an associate director in 2016. Nicole works closely with dairy industry stakeholders, including both producers and processors, on farm-to-table food microbiology. Her research interests take a holistic approach to dairy product quality and safety with the mindset that providing consumers with high-quality dairy products must start at the farm and must be a priority throughout processing, distribution, and retail. So, Nicole, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much, Barry. So, Tell me a little bit how you got into this world. What got you started on microbiology and, and what about your focus in dairy specifically? So I grew up in um, the southern tier of upstate okay. New York, so not far from where I am now in Ithaca, um, around a lot of dairy farms. So I actually had the chance to work on a neighbor's dairy farm during high okay. school. So I got my introduction that way to the world of dairy. And then I came to Cornell actually as a food nutrition and agriculture major and decided that I really wanted to focus on just that food Perfect. piece um, as I, you know, sort of made my way through my freshman year, switched to food science and um, had the idea that I would uh, work in a processing facility that I would do sort of um, QA, QC, in a dairy plant um and ice cream specifically because who doesn't <laughs> want to work in a processing exactly. facility right so um so i did an internship in that and then um 
I just happened to have have the opportunity. I met Dr. Catherine Bohr, who was the um, at the time the director of the Milk Quality Improvement Program, and um, who served two terms as dean of the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences here at Cornell. And she introduced me to food food research and microbiology, and you know that was sort of it for me. I was hooked, and I had the opportunity to start doing some research as an undergraduate, and stayed did my my master's and PhD after that, and took over the program. Um, you know, sort of uh, provisionally at first when Catherine became the dean of the um, College of Ag and Life Sciences, and then um, sort of more officially more recently. And so, um, yeah, microbiology is um, just, I'm I'm a complete nerd about it. I love to walk into the lab and see all of the, you know, gross, cool things that we can um, culture out of milk and dairy products. So to me, there's nothing, nothing more fun than, than working with the, the bacteria and fungi. I do, I do both, um, in dairy. That's so. fascinating. This is maybe a little bit off track, but I'm curious, it seems to me like sort of the average consumer in our lifetimes has shifted from bacteria or things that cause disease to, I think a lot more people have a better understanding of how there's bacteria everywhere and and some of them are maybe pretty beneficial as well as you know some are problematic how does that influence or affect you know the work that you do as a microbiologist yeah so so i would agree with you that i think there's a better understanding now than there has been in the past but i think it is still there's the conflation between food safety and food quality um, which is one of the reasons that I think we have a food waste problem in our country. And, um, you know, we label specifically uh, dairy products, which are very perishable, like fluid milk, with a date. And then consumers still, a lot of them are confused that at some point, if that date passes, then that product is no longer safe, um, which is, is certainly not true. Um, and it, and it doesn't even mean that it's not high quality anymore. It's, um, a, you know, it's a, it's a major contributor. And in fact, um, a colleague here at Cornell, um, just did some consumer research and, um, we're still seeing very high percentages of consumers who, who have that, um, image that, that there's a safety issue at some point in these products and, and certainly, um, you know, not not accurate at all. So we have a lot of education to do on the consumer side um, still. Yeah, absolutely. I fight that battle in my house. I'm the waste disposal. You know, if somebody else won't drink things, I'll still eat. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a little extreme. Good for yeah, you. Yeah. Battling food waste one one glass of milk at a time. <laughs> uh, so... I'd like to come at your work from the perspective of a dairy producer for a minute. So, you know, there are some dairy producers out there who are super well educated on, you know, what processors do and others that know very little about it. Um, but what everybody sees for sure in their milk checks is some little bonus or some aspect related to incentives to have low somatic cell counts and low plate counts, right? So, Speaking maybe specifically to people working on the on the farm side that maybe don't have a lot of perspective on why those are important and how sort of deviations in those numbers can impact uh, product quality 
fill us in on that if you would. Sure. So, so yeah, there are a few big um, parameters at the production level that impact the finished product, and certainly um, somatic cell and uh, total bacteria are two of those. Um, from the perspective of somatic cell, we know that um, dairy products, and, and namely um, cheese and extended shelf life fluid, um, can be severely... Um, impacted by high somatic cell count milk and in cheese it's both from the perspective of flavor and odor um, and body characteristics and also from a yield perspective so the processor who makes cheese out of high somatic cell count milk will get less cheese essentially um so so those those um connections those associations have been known for a really long time um you know i think in today's contemporary world we know that producers are are driving somatic cell counts down um, on average year over year and um, doing a really good good job at that. Um, but we still see some of those high somatic cell count um, farms out there who who still struggle with that. So um, so fluid milk, the especially extended shelf life, can also be impacted from a you know sort of flavor and odor perspective. Um, those those are really driven by enzymes in the um, in the raw product from the high somatic cell counts um, or high somatic cell levels that degrade proteins over time. So so that one has has been really well studied. As far as the the total count, um, you know this is this is a little more um, it's a little trickier because typically we're not seeing um, super high. Uh, total bacteria counts in the raw product. But if you start out with a high level and then there's any kind of abuse of that product, um, either at the farm level or during distribution or even at the processing facility, then we can start to reach levels of total bacteria that can impact the finished product, either because they survive pasteurization because they're in such high concentrations or because they're heat resistant types to begin with that can um, you know, survive in higher numbers anyway. We also see some uh, enzyme production from high levels of psychotolerant bacteria like Pseudomonas. So that's sort of where the idea of the PI count comes in because the preliminary incubation count sort of um, measures where what level of bacteria that can grow at low temperatures over a period of time are there in that product. Um the nice thing about a total count is it's a direct measurement of the bacteria that are in that product at that time, whereas the PI count, for example, is a predictive test. It's saying if the conditions are right for these bacteria to grow um, during handling and distribution, um, could they do that? Right. So it, it doesn't mean that they will. Um, so, you know, within that category of bacteria, though, um, a lot of my research is on spore-forming bacteria. Uh, they're at very low levels in raw milk, and so they're typically not tested for routinely. Um, there are some, um, some exceptions to that where processors are testing for, for spores, but um, they're one of the biggest impacts. They're the, the bacteria that make one of the biggest impacts on the finished product. Um, but very difficult to actually accurately test for. So, so that makes it 
challenging. So you have to control for it in other ways. Okay. So I, w- I want to dig into that, but to step back, you use the term psychotolerant. Can you define that for us? Sure. Yes. So psycho meaning cold and tolerant meaning tolerant. Um, and essentially these are bacteria that can grow at low temperatures. Some bacteria prefer to grow at low temperatures. Um, we call those psychrophilic, so cold loving. Um, but there are a much broader group of bacteria that can grow at low temperatures and don't necessarily prefer those low temperatures. Okay. So you started talking about spore formers, which I wanted to spend some time on. Um, so first of all, what what's the reason if, if they're found in low concentrations, they're hard to detect, why are they worth studying? What's What's the reason for trying to detect them? Yeah. So this is a very special um, collection of of bacteria, and it's it's not a huge group, but they are they're quite diverse. Um, and these bacteria form endospores, and endospores are very resistant um, protein structures that essentially protect that organism from um, destruction that you know would otherwise happen during pasteurization or during sanitation or drying, those kind of things. So because they're super resistant to these sort of environmental pressures that we, or processing pressures that we put on typical bacteria, um, they're they're particularly important. And then, um, you know, sort of the, the pair to that is that um, not only can they survive, but then different groups can grow under various conditions that are found in dairy products. So for example, we have um, the psychrotolerant spore-forming bacteria. These are organisms like um, Panibacillus and um, certain Bacillus species. They um, are very resistant. They survive pasteurization, but then they can grow at low temperatures. And so we know that about 50% of fluid milk in the U.S., um, high-temperature short-time milk, is um, spoiled by these spore-forming bacteria because they uh, survived that initial heat treatment. And they are in low concentrations, um, but because of their growth patterns, they can grow to high enough concentrations to cause spoilage within the shelf life of a fluid milk product. Um, in addition to those psychotolerant bacteria, uh, spore-forming bacteria, there are um, anaerobic bacteria that cause cheese spoilage. So these are actually in much lower concentrations. Um, the psychotolerant spore-forming bacteria are typically present in fluid milk at one about one per five mils or one per 10 mils. And if you, you know, kind of contrast that to what we would typically see in a total bacteria count, it's, it's extremely low. Um, the anaerobic butyric acid producing bacteria, these are clostridium um, species, and they're typically present at, you know, as low as like one per 100 mils, even one per liter. And we know that even at these extremely low concentrations, they can cause um, spoilage in in cheese products. And um, the spoilage that they cause is called late blowing. It essentially, um, these spores uh, go through a process called germination, which is why they begin to grow. And in about 60 days of aging, they can turn, um, they produce copious amounts of gas and turn cheese into just a complete ball of cheese because it, it produces so much gas. So um so those ones are are very difficult to to control because again they're coming in at such low concentrations it's very difficult to test for them. Um and then, 
you don't know, a processor doesn't know they have the um, spoilage until well into aging. And that aging process is very expensive. It's expensive to keep the facilities to to do that. Um, a lot of times it's, you know, very manual from the perspective of having to um, flip cheeses, you know, every day so that they age um, um, evenly across the entire cheese. So so it's a it's a big economic um, impact. And then um, sort of the last big group of spore-forming bacteria that that we see in dairy are the thermophilic um, spore-forming bacteria. Those are ones that uh, we find in dairy powders. And of course, dairy powders, big export opportunity for the um, U.S. dairy industry. And so um, spores are, are one of the big parameters that especially international customers test for in order to indicate if the powder was, was processed under hygienic conditions and has, um, you know, overall high quality. And so the, the sort of desire, the, um, the need for these low spore powders requires that even going back to the, the production level, that the, um, entry of those organisms into the milk is controlled. Okay. So it, it sounds to me like the majority of these, I guess, contamination issues, if you want to use that term, uh, relate to product quality. Are, are any of these things of uh, concern in terms of consumer health? So there are spore-forming um, pathogens. So Bacillus cereus is one that a lot of people have heard of, or Clostridium botulinum is another that, that folks tend to, to know of. Um, Bacillus cereus can cause um, two different types of human disease, and we know that these organisms are present in dairy products. Um, it tends to be mild disease, so we don't have good a good understanding of what um, the human health implications are at this point, because a lot of people don't report those types of illnesses. You know, maybe they have diarrhea for a day or they, you know, vomit a couple of times. Most people don't go to their doctor and get tested, right, for, for those kind of things. So so it is a little more challenging from that perspective, but we know these organisms are in the um, raw milk. They show up in finished product. And one of the things our team is doing here is um, using some um, Monte Carlo simulations just to model out what are the risks of um, foodborne disease based on what we know about the types of uh, pathogens that are spore forming in dairy and how that those products are handled throughout the distribution channel. So you, you kind of talked about some interesting examples of how even very low abundance bacteria can, you know, I can imagine being very frustrated 60 days into putting a lot of resources and labor into a cheese product to have it go bad on you. Are there sort of global data or at least national data on like what fraction of total dairy products end up being wasted either at the production level, the retail level, the consumer level? Do we have those numbers? Yeah. So they're getting a little dated at this point, but um, Gene Busby um, at the USDA did a really comprehensive survey about 10 years ago. And um, we know that dairy products, most of them are are pretty perishable, right? So especially fluid milk. And so fluid milk really drives the waste of dairy products um, at the processing retail consumer level. Um, 
and consumers are the the biggest driver of that waste. So we don't see a lot of waste happening at retail. We don't see a lot of waste happening in, um, you know, the processing facility. It's mostly coming from the consumers themselves. And, um, you know, it's it's 25 billion pounds of, of dairy every year. So it's a lot of dairy. Um, and two thirds of that is fluid milk. And again, this goes back to sort of, you know, a lot of miscommunication about if a product is still safe or good quality um, over time. And, um, and, you know, and, and frankly, spoilage is a, is a big factor in this waste because once it, once that product gets into a consumer's home, you know, it only has a certain amount of time before it does have growth of different organisms or even just, you know, abiotic issues like, um, you know, it just doesn't taste Oxidation, great after right? yeah. a period of time, right? Yep. So, yep. yeah, there's light oxidation, there's, you know, um, enzymes that, that are going to be active over over that long of a period of time. So, um, but, you know, in order to to address those things, that it, it requires sort of this comprehensive approach, right? Like we have to address spoilage, we have to address consumer education. Um, you know, even things like um, cold chain issues are still are still there. Even even now, we know that that's important. But um, e-commerce has really taken off since the pandemic started, and um, the temperatures that products are exposed to during that distribution is very uncontrolled. And um, if you think about, I don't know if you've used Instacart or one of those types of services, but these are folks who go into a store, they do shopping maybe for multiple customers at a time. So two or three customers at a time. So, um, you know, they may have a, a half gallon or gallon of milk sitting in their cart while they're, while they're doing all this shopping and then they go deliver it to people. Right. And they could be on the road for an hour. So that product could be sitting in a hot car for a long time before you get it at your house. And so um, that's one thing that we're studying right now is sort of the implications of those, um, you know, lack of, of cold chain during that distribution on the on the shelf life and quality of the product. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I remember that today in the U.S. only about 25% of milk actually ends up getting marketed as fluid milk, and yet it accounts for two-thirds of the waste. Is that right? right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean... There's there's new technologies, right? I mean, people want consumers want something more. Not all consumers, and and let me just revise that because in fluid in the fluid milk category, consumers are still very overall still very price driven. So most consumers are still choosing the gallon, you know, container of milk because it's the cheapest milk. And I think that. Um, you know, even with the sort of development and um, and innovation that we see in fluid milk with more extended shelf life products, higher protein products, lower lactose products, which is, you know, really exciting and I think really answering a consumer need. Um, you know, there's still a lot of people out there who are buying just gallons of, of milk because that's that's what they can afford, right? So, but yes, consumers continue to to drink less fluid, but overall consumption continues to rise, right? They're eating more cheese. They're eating 
more yogurt. They're eating ice cream, right? So, um, you know, so I think overall, not a bad picture for dairy, but but certainly different how, than how we've we've seen it in the past. So to circle back to the farm level, then I think that you've helped me learn a lot about some of the factors that, that drive stability of products and such. Um, we've already talked about somatic cells and bacterial counts in raw milk. Um, are there are there things that you talk about within like the milk quality improvement program that that you help lead um, that at the farm level are super impactful in terms of you know putting a good product in front of consumers? Yeah, so so I think one thing that gets overlooked a lot are flavor and odor um, profiles of of raw milk. We know that. Um, there's a there's a lot of things that can impact the flavor and odor of raw milk that happen at the production level and um you know for for the most part there's the evaluation of whether there is um a defect in that product is just like open the top of the tank and smell right <laughs> so um but a lot of defects you can't smell and and we've been working um a lot on this issue over the last couple of years there are a lot of oxidized um, defects coming in in raw milk products, and that's from a variety of different sources. But consumers are very sensitive to oxidized defects. So um, so we've worked with a couple of fairly large manufacturers that um, were having consumer complaints right on their fresh milk, um, and we were able to track that back to oxidized defects in the in the raw product. And these are, you know, you can address them. There are ways to to manage that at the farm. But if you don't know that they're happening, that that product, you know, goes out to the consumer and the consumer notices. And, you know, I think just generally it's really important to, I, I you know, I think you mentioned something about um, producers in general have different feelings about, um, you know, the finished product or, or have different levels of knowledge of the finished product. I think it's really important to keep in mind always that in the end, the consumer has a lot of options in today's marketplace, right? They have almonds, beverage, and oats, and whatever, you know, there, there's a lot of options out there. And I don't think we need to put ourselves in a position where we give them any reason to switch to a different product um, when we have such a superior product, right? And um, certainly flavor and odor defects can um, can impact their their acceptance of our product. So we want to make sure we control that. Um, other things that, you know, um, impact the, the flavor and odor. So we see oxidized flavors a lot. We can see things like um, microbially induced flavors. So things like um, multi flavors that can um, originate from the growth of bacteria in the in the product before pasteurization, and then you know to full full disclosure that can be at the farm or that can be in the processing facility prior to pasteurization. Um, bacteria grow, you know they they don't stop growing once it leaves the farm; they just keep on growing. So, so I that's one thing that I talk about a lot with with industry is. You have to control the farm level. You have to control that pre-processing in the facility, and then you have to control post-processing. So it's, that's where that sort of comprehensive, you know, systems approach comes from. Because if you do one well, it's not going to matter. You're still not going to end up with a, a great product in the end. As you're talking through this, I'm trying to think of scenarios that would lead to oxidized flavors that, you know, at the farm level. Is it like 
a little bit of cleaning chemical contamination or what what is the most common yeah so so there's actually a lot of different things that lead to oxidation and oxidation tends to be sort of a dumping ground defect so um, it could be anything from a water quality issue right. like there are trace um, you know metals in the in the water um, old piping in the in the facility it could be small leaks in pumps. Um, that introduce a little extra air, right? Yeah, and okay. that, that oxidizes. Um, it could be, you know, over agitation in the bulk tank. It could be long pipelines or or high um, high lifts in the pipeline, um, even at the the processing facility. Milk is is pretty susceptible to oxidation. So so there's a lot of different factors that that kind of lead into that. Um, it's it can be a harder thing to um, to troubleshoot. It can even go back to right, like feed. Um, you know, having certain certain types of feed or not having enough um, antioxidants in the in the feed can can lead to oxidation. Hmm. That's interesting. And then certainly light, but we don't see that very often at the production level. Right. Yeah, I suppose as we get to bigger and build bigger milking centers on the larger farms, that you know those issues become. Uh, I mean, greater risk. We have to think about it more. Yeah. Fascinating. Thank you. It's time for our famous three. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like R Yeast 40, Ruminal and Intestinal Double Modulation by ICC Animal Nutrition, Exelite by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. DSM, providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. DSM strives to bring our customers efficient, profitable dairy solutions. From essential vitamins like HYD and Victus Transition to next-generation products like Biofix, our portfolio is growing as we continue to bring innovation to the dairy industry. Visit dsm.com to learn more about our newest solutions. Maximize profitability and herd health with early detection in animal health, reproduction, calving, and feeding. The most advanced bolus technology and professional support from agricultural experts makes this possible. SmaxTech, the health system that future-proofs your operation. Uh, okay, we've got three questions we ask every guest. Um, I'm going to throw these at you and we'll see what you have ready. So, first of all, what is your favorite dairy-related book or resource? So, so it's okay to go like full-on nerd here, right? Like, yeah, you're not going to judge me. I'm not for... going to judge. So on the on the dairy food side, we have um, standard methods for the examination of dairy products, and and I refer to it with my team as the the Bible because we use it very frequently for our analyses, um, and um, you know it covers it covers a variety of different topics. So that's my my sort of dairy go to book on the food side because it has all the. All the methods. That's good. Yeah, it's good for people to hear. There are still printed resources that people use on a daily basis. Because yeah, I agree. That, that's right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it hasn't gone completely away yet. <laughs> okay, what about your favorite book or resource outside of ag? Well, so we, I did put some thought into this, and um, 
I, I'm not sure if this is cheating or not, but um, the other book that I use a lot, it's actually a series of books, is the um, Berge's Manual for Systematic Bacteriology because, you know, ultimately I'm a microbiologist. Yep. And so um, we do a lot of method development in my group, okay. and that requires having sort of that, you know, detailed background on what sugars will a will an organism ferment and you know what are the specific growth conditions and those kind of things so i'd say between those two resources that's what i use a lot and of course i apply that burgess to to agriculture so maybe that's a little bit cheating but <laughs> <laughs> that's my answer I love the clear logic of those like okay it's like a lot of yes no questions right do they eat lactate or not and this you know Last question. In your opinion, what sets successful dairy professionals apart from those who are less successful? Uh-huh. Um, so, so I kind of have a um, a philosophy, and a, and I've talked about it a, a couple of times. But I think that what sets an what sets individuals who are successful apart, and what sets um, you know, sort of our our industry apart and and what we need to do is is have sort of multidisciplinary collaboration and i think that people who are willing to learn from um other people who have expertise in in different areas um you know i i'm a food scientist right but i i think that the what happens at the production level is so important to f- the food product that we make that um you know and I've seen so much good come out of that, you know, kind of getting outside of my my little um, box of, of dairy foods that um, that's something, you know, I love to go on to farms and learn from, from farmers. I love to talk to people there. I love to go into the processing facility. I think we have to have that sort of just genuine connection with people and, um, you know, and, and the willingness to to sort of challenge ourselves to learn new things um i think that's what makes what you know what makes people successful i think that's what will make our industry successful going forward is is being able to to bridge those two um two areas great answer well thank you again dr nicole martin for joining us on the dairy podcast show enjoyed the conversation about uh, food microbiology and milk quality Thank you so much for having me. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next episode, and we'll see you next time.